Hi, it's Catherine. Before we get started, I have two cool podcasts I want to tell you about. The first is If These Ovaries Could Talk. As you know from our second season, I am fascinated by unconventional families and challenging the status quo at home. And If These Ovaries is all about that, too. It's a podcast hosted by two lesbians, Robin Hopkins and Jamie Kelton, who chat with guests about their non-traditional families. The goal of each episode is to highlight these families, lifting them up, normalizing these stories for the rest of the world. They recently had Rosie O'Donnell on the show, and it was a fascinating episode. But they also have great conversations with not famous people as well about creating family and forging your own path. Listen to If These Ovaries Could Talk wherever you get your podcasts. The second podcast I want to tell you about is a show I'm currently binging. It's called Alone, A Love Story from CBC Podcasts. I'm usually more of a consumer of journalistic shows, but this serialized memoir is totally engrossing. Michelle Parisi takes you on a winding journey from lust to heartbreak, through loneliness and despair, to eventually finding the courage to face the question mark of life alone. There are some great themes about marriage and motherhood in it, and if you need a juicy story to dive into while the double shift is on break, definitely check out Alone, A Love Story right now. It's available wherever you get your podcasts. The Double Shift is currently on hiatus from our regular show, but I wanted to share with you a very cool live taping from the Fuck Mom Guilt World Tour, which we did around the time of season one. This is a live recording of that tour at Beta Brand in San Francisco last summer. Let's jump right in. This is The Double Shift, a show about a new generation of working mothers. I'm your host, Katherine Goldstein, and this is a live taping from the Fuck Mom Guilt World Tour. I'm joined by special guest, Hana Baba, host of KALW's Cross Currents and The Stoop Podcast. And my co-host for this event is Lauren Schiller of Inflection Point, a podcast about women rising up. You're the best live tape audience for the Fuck Mom Guilt World Tour ever. Okay. So you've got, you've got three moms up here. We're all journalists. We all host podcasts. We all ask people questions for a living. And we all have our own unique experiences in our identities as working moms. So this isn't going to be a typical Q&A. It's more of a freewheeling roundtable where we're going to all be sharing and chiming in and asking each other questions. Okay, so my first question is for you, Catherine. You've done a few of these events now. This is your Bay Area section of your tour. So what, what was the inspiration behind the Fuck Mom Guilt World Tour? Yes, so to start, I want to I share a little bit of my own story that also goes into why I started the Double Shift podcast. So I had a very successful, hard-charging New York City media career, and I knew I wanted to be a mom, and I thought motherhood would be nothing that I couldn't handle because everything up to that point had gone pretty well in my life and career. So um, when my son was born, I had a rough start to motherhood. My son was born with some serious health problems. He's doing great now, but it was, it was a pretty traumatic start to, to the beginning of my life as a mother. And then I lost my job when he turned six months old. 
So the combination of those two big life events really had me sort of back on my heels and sort of questioning everything about who I was as a person, my identity, my value as a, as a worker. And I also, you know, I kind of felt like everyone must have this working mom thing figured out except for me, and I was just a personal failure. But then as I started to ask more journalistic questions about working motherhood, and starting to talk to more working moms and doing more research and reporting, I realized nobody had this all figured out, and so many of us felt like failures. And so as I started to do more research and reporting, we have this feeling that so many mothers feel like failures, and yet the realities that we face as mothers are pretty tough. We are socially and economically marginalized in many ways. A, a woman, when if she has a baby between the ages of 25 and 35, her earnings never recover. And we live in a country where 25% of women go back to work within two weeks of giving birth. So we live in a country that really devalues mothers and has so little societal support, public policy support, family support, and yet, we all feel like failures, and we all feel personally bad that we've done something wrong. And so I started to notice that most of the media aimed at mothers really never talked about these things and didn't really do much investigative or hard-hitting or critical journalism. It was usually like tips and tricks and how if we got up at 5 a.m., then everything would be better and that all, that's all we needed to do. Or if we employed this genius lunch packing strategy, our lives would work. And that's just, there's no lunch packing strategy that's gonna fix the situation for mothers in America. So um, I created the double shift because I wanted to tell much more compelling journalistic stories. And we've, in our first season, we've gone across the country to tell stories you really haven't heard before. And so part of that is to do the real journalism, but also I wanted to do this tour because I wanted to bring people together in community. Because it's one thing to hear a podcast, but it's another thing to truly connect with people and meet people together and come together over shared experience. So the Fuck Mom Guilt World Tour is just a, one way to do that. I love it. And I also want to comment that I'm not getting up at 5 a.m. ever, like unless I have to make a plane. And I have to confess that I actually am on video um, telling moms what a lunch packing strategy could look like for a client of mine for marketing. <laughs> now I feel guilty. <laughs> this is a guilt-free zone, Guilt-free zone. <laughs> so I've shared a bit about my inspiration for the show and the tour, and I want to hear a bit from our two, these two wonderful women on the stage with me, and about what has formed you as working mothers, and you know, what are some of those moments that have really formed your experience? So we're going to start with you, Lauren. Okay. So I, I too, was a hard-charging executive in New York City working for an advertising firm um, before I, we actually we moved out to San Francisco where I continued doing the same thing. And it was right on the heels of the dot-com bubble and then burst. And so I was doing a lot of work in tech. And when that went away, our agency was looking for all kinds of clients. And we had the opportunity to go back to New York City and pitch Breck Shampoo. And so we flew, we flew to New York. It was September 11th, 2001. And we're sitting in a meeting, and we're waiting for this client to show up. And he is so freaking late. And we kept hearing he's in traffic. And we're like, you know, our, our, like our happy space was just like getting smaller and smaller. And somebody... Um, opened the door, walked in the room, and called out one of the founders who um, came back and said, 
well, our client's not going to be able to make it. He's stuck in traffic. They've shut down downtown Manhattan because a plane has flown into the World Trade Center. And we were like, what the fuck? Like, a plane? What, like, why would a plane fly into the World Trade Center? That's so weird. So we walked outside, and we looked down the street, and then we saw the second plane fly into the second building. And um, so at that time, my husband, who was sitting here with us right now, and I had been together for 10 years, and we knew that kids were in the future, but they had never had, I kind of said, like, by 35, I want to have kids. And um, I was 31 at this time. And so I called him. I told him we were okay. And then I came home. And you can verify if this is really true. And <laughs> this is how I remember it. I was like, let's make some babies. So, <laughs> so something about this 9-11 experience made me want to procreate. So was part of that sort of inspiration was really, like, this sort of sense of fragility of, of your life or sort of, like, this witnessing this big event sort of made you reevaluate your priorities? I think it was, I think it was like, wow, we, time is precious and we can take nothing for granted. Hannah, um, something I think often gets overlooked in our discussions about how we see ourselves as working mothers is our own relationship to our own mothers and what has been modeled for us. So tell me a little about, a little bit about your own mother and how that has shaped you as a working mother. Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing I think about a lot of uh, children of immigration. Uh, my family came from Sudan, and my family's been here since the 70s. They brought me here as a baby. So, but there's always this feet in two worlds, feet in two cultures, right? And so my mother, um, Sudan is one of the countries where you know, we had the first woman judge in the 60s. We had the first woman this, and parliamentarian. Um, we, girls' education is focused on, and so my mom and dad met in college, for example, and um, so she was working when she was uh, married. When she had me, there was an expectation for her to stay at home, and especially moving to this new land called America, where everybody's different. You, you, you know, you, you need to be close to your children when they're young and teach them, you know, your language and your values and all of the kind of fears that come with immigration, I think. So she stayed at home um, and had my next brother, one, two, three, in my culture, they say never count the number of people because it's superstitious. I shouldn't mm. be doing this. But a number of, of, of brothers, <laughs> a number of brothers, um, and, and she was at home. And for me, that's what, that's what I was used to. When I grew up, got married, I, I thought differently. I felt like I wanted to continue working when my children were young and then maybe let go a little bit and start maybe freelancing, doing something like that as they came into their teen years. Because me growing up here in the US, I think my teen years were, you know, a time that was, for everybody really, you know, a time when you're sensitive, a time when you're hearing all of this messaging around you. But for us, it was really, we were isolated. We were not in a very diverse Houston, Texas in the 80s. Uh, we, not a lot of people looked like us. 
definitely not Muslims. My mom wore the headscarf. I got teased all the time. And so, you know, it was like you go home and there's an environment that's very Sudan, that's very, we're speaking Arabic, we're eating the Sudanese food, we're doing this, and you go outside to school and it's a totally different experience. So, but growing up and becoming a teenager, I remember when I first kind of did this to my parents, right? And looked at them in the eye and talked back. Something happened to them at that point where they were like, okay, we need to, you know, do something. When we actually moved back to Sudan, they picked up <laughs> and moved back to Sudan. And I believe it was after the day I did this and said, why can't I have a boyfriend like Jennifer? <laughs> with, your, with your hand I on your hip. I believe that with all my heart, head. put my yeah. hand on my hip, and then looking them in the eye and being sassy, and that, that for them culturally, they were not having that. And so at that point, <laughs> we moved back to Sudan. I lived kind of my formative years there. Uh, we lived next to my grandma's house, which was extremely formative. It was, it was like Grand Central Station. Aunts and uncles coming through all the time, just like for random reasons. Somebody's bringing food to share. Somebody's bringing their you know, new dress to show us, whatever. I loved it. I just, I just absorbed all of it. I loved the culture. I loved the food. I loved the language. And I came back later, actually, as an adult, and then had my own children. Having my own children, um, I had to work at the beginning of, of um, my first born child's life because just money. I was marrying a resident who was in his first, second year of residency. We all know what kind of money that is. Um, anyway, so I, was, I, I started working. I put my daughter in, pre in daycare when she was four months old. And of course the guilt. And of course the cultural also burden of why would you let somebody else raise your child? Why would you let somebody else? And I was getting phone calls from aunties from Sudan and being just like, but how is she going to learn Arabic? And how is she going to do this? And how? And so I had, it's like you have to deal with the mom guilt of America. Because I was also on the blogs of that time. And what is it called? Baby Center? Oh, God. <laughs> Girl. Baby Center with the working mom versus non-working mom wars. And that was kind of just the American side of the struggle. And then I would get the calls from Sudan of just like, you need to be at home with your child. Um, uh, and so for me, I think it's just, it's just different because of that immigrant background. But having, having an understanding husband as well, I think, is crucial. Having that partner that will support you no matter what you do. And I'm looking at you, yeah. <laughs> Lauren's Yay, better half, um, is, is important, especially when you have a whole other culture you're kind of like pushing up against. And so I realized that I was doing something very different from my mom, but that was okay. So talking a little bit about different values beyond, you know, wanting to raise, wanting your children to speak Arabic or having certain kinds of uh, experiences in the home. There's also really different cultural values around 
American families and individualism is a super big thing in how we raise our kids and how we live our lives. And that's not true in Sudanese culture. No. Talk, talk a little bit about, I'm really interested in, we're, the double shift is going to be exploring family a lot in our second season. And I'm, I'm interested a little bit in this communal versus individual uh, approach to how we think about family. Right. I mean, like I said, back in Sudan, it's, about, it's not about you only. You know, as a, as a unit, it's about you and your family, but also the extended family, maybe even the neighbors. Uh, in some instances, maybe even the whole village. And what you do reflects on all of these people and affects all of these people. And some of these people might have a say in your life choices. <gasps> That here in the U.S., (laughs) it's not totally up to you. You come to the U.S., it's me and and what I want and what's best for me. And those are two very, you know, different, I think, ideas that you, you learn to reconcile when you're here because that is a good message to care for yourself and to think about yourself. And for example, I know, you know, in, in black communities right now, in African communities, you know, this sense of, I have girls, I have two girls, and black girl magic, and be proud of yourself, and your hair, and your identity, and all of this, at the same time, you know, but grandma and auntie are asking you maybe to not color your hair, right? And, but what about you, mama and daddy? What do you think? But, you know, and grandma's with us these days at home, for example. So you, you just navigate, navigate these, these, these two very different ideas. And confusion does happen. Right. And, you know, they will come and ask us, you know, why does this thing matter? Why does it matter that, for example, I was asked the other day by my 12-year-old who hates Sunday school where we go and teach them Arabic, hates it. Um, like, why do I need to learn this? For what? Why? Just convince me now. And she's someone who's made PowerPoint presentations to convince us to get a cat. <laughs> so she wants, she wants evidence, you know, and she wants to understand we're living here in America. Why do I need to learn this language that I will never use? And my older one is, you know, deeper. And her question was, is this to satisfy, is this for me or is this for you? Who is this satisfying right, 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 exactly? Right. And who is this about? You and know? when it's about the whole family and the culture, that it's just you don't want to do it, it's a different conversation. And they feel yeah. it when we go in Sudanese circles, a concert, a picnic, whatever. They feel that. Yeah. They feel that the other teenagers maybe go back to Sudan more frequently or do go to that Arabic school mm-hmm. and they do the communal thing and they do the, hi, auntie, how are you? How are you? And... <laughs> You know, some of you might know what I mean. It's just like there's a demeanor and there's things culturally that you learn when somebody, an elder comes in, you stand up, things like that. Uh, they do feel out of place. Hmm. So I take them even more. <laughs> so <laughs> so uh, fast forward to sort of where you are in your career now, which is you host a news magazine show, you have successful podcasts, you know, you win awards and you get to be sort of a prominent person, but you also have a bunch of different intersectional identities and you often occupy a professional space where 
you're one of the first or one of the only. Like, you're, you might be the most prominent black Muslim woman on a panel or um, the only African immigrant mother or the only hijabi-wearing journalist. Um, do you feel like being sort of visible in these intersections and some one of the first or the only, like, does this create more pressure or expectations on you? For sure. Burdensome, too, right? I don't want to be the representative for all Africans or black people or Muslims or Muslim women, black people wearing scarves. You know what I mean? It's just like, it's a lot, and it's, it is burdensome, but it is inevitable right. that I am those things. People will see me and say, yes, in their minds, whether they want to or not, she represents a certain community. And so I do feel that I, I, whether I like it or not, am representative of all of these communities, and that's what I gotta live with. Something you said um, a moment ago about wanting to really be uh, sort of continue with your career when your kids were young and thinking about stepping back in the middle school years which, or early teen years, which you are now, I don't hear about that as much because I'm, I'm in a phase with a younger child and I know a lot of people with younger children and it, we really feel like if we just get them to preschool, everything's going to be great. Like We just think that the baby phase is the hardest phase. How do you think about your career at this moment when you, things are going really well and you're thinking about, was this a time you were going to step back? Yeah, I mean, it's a time now. It's interesting. It's a time when I don't have to worry about a, a lot of things, right, in terms of um, can they do this on their own, right, or can they stay home alone and, you know, me and my husband can go out to, for dinner or whatever. But then because this is their teenage years and, again, their formative years, uh, I feel the burden of um, just trying to instill in them values that, that I learned and, you know, this is a time when they're very sensitive. This is a time when they're thinking about identity a lot. And so we talk about this a lot on our podcast, The Stoop, where, like, who am I, what am I, and how do I fit into this society? And we live in the Bay Area for a very specific reason because it is so diverse um, and because you can kind of define yourself here is what I felt. So they are at a time when I do feel like I can let go a little bit, but at the same time, I'm even more in their business. Mm -hmm. And I'm even more kind of just like coming into the room and just like laying down. And so what happened with so-and-so today? I know all the gossip. <laughs> I know all the tea from school. <laughs> and, and some of it is like I don't want to, you know, just like part of me doesn't really want to hear it, but I force myself to hear it because, you know, they need me at this time, I feel, more than they needed me when they were toddlers and when they were little, which sounds weird. It sounds so overwhelming to me. <laughs> it's, it's, I don't know. It's just, Next level challenges. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, especially the identity stuff. And, it, yeah. and the, they are living at a time now where this is talked about a lot. It's part of their daily conversations at school with their friends on social media. The whole, who am I? What do I stand for? Who am I allowed to be? Who do, you know, and that's some deep-ish. I know I'm allowed, I'm allowed to curse, right? It's, it's called it. Fuck Mom oh, Goat. Oh, right, right. 
You could only say fuck. So, and you know, I for me, it's like, it's it's harder than the work that I was doing at the beginning, in their babyhood and their toddlerhood when they were small children. Like, I feel like this is the harder work that maybe I need to be more available for. Lauren, you also have teenagers, so I would love you to weigh in a little bit about this, and also this question of like, are you know. People, sometimes people feel like they need to step back, and our society doesn't always support that idea, or maybe never supports that idea. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. I, so having a 14-year-old and a 16-year-old, I feel like they need me just as much as they ever did, but just in totally different ways, and in ways that they would never necessarily, you know, ask me for, or, or if they do ask me or for it. Or acknowledge. Or acknowledge, right. yeah. It's a, it's, a different, it's a different ask, but the time, the time is still the same. Right. You know, and so it becomes increasingly hard. So even in these years, like there's not a way f that's well accepted in our society for women to take a few years off at, at a potentially a very uh, sort of like all times of your career are delicate times. You know, so if you take time off in your 30s when you have kids or you take time off in your 40s when they're older, those are all sort of adds up to these wage gaps that we find yeah. and these fact that women's earnings never recover. So these are all the social forces at play behind the, some, of, some of those numbers I talked about in the beginning. Hannah, you uh, spoke a little bit about your, when you went back to work after your daughter was born, who was four months old, and dealing with the, the American mom guilt, but also dealing with the just straight up judgment from your community in Sudan and other sort of like, I, other kinds of pressures. And one of the most universal things I found in talking to mothers is basically no matter what choices you make, people judge you. Like it does not, it really, you can make any choice um, and people j just judge those choices. That's just part of how we see mothers. We feel we have the right to judge them for their choices. Mm. But I, so I was curious in the face of that judgment, you know, you've continued on with your career and kept building it and been very successful. Like what's your North Star? when you're dealing with these two different kinds of judgment and pressures? Hmm. Um, North Star. So, I mean, for me, it's been the work itself. I love my job. Uh, I've, all, you know, I've always been in radio. I studied law, but, you know, that ended. <laughs> I, I did get the degree, so my mom and dad, you know, were fine. But I went into radio early in life, and it was, I was 18 years old, and, and I just had this love for audio, the intimacy of storytelling um, on radio. But also, because I grew up with storytelling, when we, we went back to Sudan, one of the gems that I was able to enjoy was my grandmother telling us uh, folk tales. And she was a woman who was illiterate, couldn't read, couldn't write, but she had hundreds of folk tales just like stored in her internal hard drive. And would, you know, we would all sit on the floor and she would just tell us these amazing stories, fairy tales, and scary ghouls, and, and the king that wouldn't marry his daughter off, except if the, pr the prince that came and did this thing this task and the task would be like going where and like took hours and hours of just weaving these stories that in addition to radio so I think it helps a lot that the thing that's keeping me away from my children and bringing the judgment is a thing that I actually 
adore and love. Um, and that's why I feel like we need to be working in fields that we actually, what is it, what is it that they say? They say, even if you weren't paid to do it, you would still be doing it. <laughs> which kind of goes against our little, our, our, our talk here. But uh, just like passion, uh, when you have passion for something in that way, it really, really, really helps you go on. Um, I did have two bouts with uh, cancer and it just felt like, okay, you know, life is short and getting into my 40s as well helped a lot. I started really caring less about what people think. I think in your 40s, you get that kind of tough skin as well. Is that true? I'm ready. Yeah? She's not, I'm not 40 my, I'm not my 40s. <laughs> Something happens to you when you turn 40. You stop giving an F. So what happens yeah, when you turn 50? Because that's me in January. <laughs> Maybe you don't care anyway, even anyway. more. I think I'll care but even less. Yeah. I think just things happen to you in life that give you perspective and help you understand that it is really about your joy, the joy of the people you love that are immediately around you, your children, and your work, what you give out to this world. So uh, we're actually gonna change gears a bit and talk about the mental load, but first we're going to uh, take a quick break for our listeners at home to hear from our sponsors. Now I'd like to tell you about a sponsor, Third Love. I've been a loyal Third Love customer for years, and I know when my bras need a refresh or life happens and I need a new size, their Fit Finder quiz will be there to find my perfect fit in 60 seconds or less. After my son was born, I needed new bras and also help finding my correct size. Their Fit Finder quiz worked great for me, and their Fit Stylist customer service reps also guided me when I had additional questions. After this twin pregnancy, I will definitely be shopping Third Love again to find whatever my new perfect fit is. Every bra is backed by their perfect fit promise. 60 days to wash it, wear it, and if you don't love it, returns are always free. Listeners, for real. This is hands down the most comfortable bra you'll ever own. Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone. So right now they're offering my listeners 15% off your first order. Go to thirdlove.com slash double shift now to find your perfect fitting bra and get 15% off your first purchase. That's thirdlove.com slash double shift for 15% off today. You are listening to a live taping of the Fuck Mom Guilt World Tour, co-hosted by Lauren Schiller with special guest Hana Baba. So I'm personally very interested in the idea of the mental load, that there's a huge number of logistics and things to keep track of to make families work, and there's often an imbalance with this mental load. And in two-parent hetero families, this often falls to the mother. You, dear listeners, I know are interested in it too, because I heard about it from a lot of you, and we dove into the idea of the deep pressures on mothers and the mental load with author Angela Garbez in our season two finale. So let's listen in to the conversation I had with Hannah and Lauren about it at our live event. We're back. 
live from the Fuck Mom Guilt World Tour. <laughs> um, so first off, Hannah and Lauren, what's on your mental checklist right now? <laughs> well, in addition to remembering to pay the home insurance, homeowner's insurance, um, I actually have this like never ending burden <laughs> of worrying about like the future for my daughters. <laughs> that is that's, on my mental checklist. A, that's it's like, a heavy list. Fix the future. That, that is a, I don't know when you get to cross that thing off your mental checklist. Hana, what's on your mental checklist? My mental checklist. Tomorrow my daughter is supposed to get braces, but 10.30 won't work, so we have to reschedule it yeah. to another time. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Um, what's so, on yours, Catherine? Um, that we need to set up an automatic payment for my son's preschool, and I th I'm worried that I'm going to forget when I get back to North Carolina. <laughs> um, okay. So... Um, I want to ask Lauren and Hannah, do you think any mother can offload the checklist? Is this something that we can do? Uh, Hannah. I offload parts of the checklist all the time. Uh, my husband steps up immediately when he feels like I'm overwhelmed. He knows when I'm overwhelmed, he can tell. <laughs> um, not because he's a psychiatrist. But <laughs> is he a psychiatrist? We're just very close. He is a psychiatrist. <laughs> that might help. But, you know, I feel, and I immediately say yes. I've learned at the beginning of our marriage, and especially when we started having children, this was harder to kind of let go. It's just like, he's not going to do it right. I have to do it by myself. And, and again, just like through, t by, and still, you know, like, what was it the other day? just like laundry detergent, right? Get this one, please. I even like took a picture of it right. and sent it to him. Right. And he still got the wrong right. one. And a mop. Same thing. I took a picture the other day. Right. I'm sorry to do this to you. I'm outing you in front of everybody in the podcast. Um, but, you know, he tries and it's fine. And I've learned to let go a little bit. You know, especially of the things like that, right? Just like the shopping isn't right. You know, um, he picked up the daughter a little late. I'm starting to become more relaxed and flexible. I think it has to do with they're older and we're thinking about bigger picture things. Right. College and identity, you know, these like existential philosophical things that seem to be much more worthy of my worry yeah. and my brain, brain than the tide with bleach. Right. <laughs> so it, letting go of the tide of bleach because you're worried about the larger existential questions. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, Lauren. I, well, but I, I just want to comment on what you just said, which is like, you're still in charge of the checklist. I am. Yeah. You, yes. So can the mother off, the, you still have the checklist even though you have a supportive partner who is helping, he is helping with He's the checklist. Helping. He will say, yeah. for example, is there salad? Do right. I need to bring the sal some right. salad stuff? Right. Maybe I didn't have that in my mind. I don't right, know right, right. if that's important, yeah. but, you know, it's a thing. Yeah. <laughs> it's good. Check one the lettuce. for remembering yeah. the lettuce. Yes. Fiber is yeah. so important. Yeah. Um, I don't even know what the question is anymore. Okay. Do I, can I let it go? Can I let the mental checklist go? I am like, I am like. Or can any mother? Can any mother? Yeah, I'm sure some mothers can, but I can't. I, I, I am like, the, like this crazy to-do list maker, and it's like in my head, and it's on paper, and like, no, I can never let it go, even, even with an amazing supportive husband who's like telling me things that need to go on the list. <laughs> so I'm not the only one coming up with the items. Um, so I'm 
semi-obsessed with this idea of the mental checklist and the mental load, and I do think mothers can let go of the mental checklist. I think we are socially conditioned to feel like it's our responsibility because we are so deeply judged when things fall off the checklist. Like, nobody judges a father if the kid's socks are dirty, and nobody judges a father if the school permission form isn't turned in on time. It, all that judgment comes to the mother. Or if the hair is messy. Or if the hair is messy. Nobody's calling, nobody's gossiping about the father. No, it's me. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. us, women. Yeah. yeah. You have a great episode on this on the stoop. Yeah. I just want to refer people to yeah. go listen to. Uh, yeah. Listen to that one. It's hard. So good. The struggle is real. But so one, like, I think there's some very good strategies with like very detailed spreadsheets that are like really delegated and like not if someone doesn't do their job you don't rescue them you just make the spreadsheet and it's their responsibility and you don't think about it like that's the actual like practical strategy I've read about that's interesting I think that goes to a lot of issues with renegotiating partnerships like I think anytime you have a child um, your partnership if you're in a partnership is renegotiated on some level and then the third part is like truly just not giving a fuck what people think about you. Like that is like the <laughs> ultimate key to getting rid of the mental checklist is just like, <laughs> is that? That's, that's a hard one that last No, one. it's totally hard. And that's because especially as mothers, we're so socially conditioned to feel that judgment and be sensitive to that judgment. And so I think that, but that not giving a fuck, like my quick personal example is that kids' birthday parties are like the bane of my existence and I always like I we planning to get the kid that we're going to's birthday gift on time and wrapping it and like I'll do it and I, my husband usually takes them to the party and then he forgets to give the gift I do all this work to make it get the gift and wrap it and he doesn't even drop it off at the table it's like still in the bag and then so I just decided like we don't do birthday gifts like we I just like this is not worth the amount of energy this is taking. So our kid, he doesn't care. He doesn't care that he brings the kid to the birthday party and all the other parents have brought gifts and we don't bring gifts. Like he, he's impervious to whatever side eye is going on. And I just accept that. And then I, and maybe they're all thinking like, wow, Catherine didn't get a gift. And so in return, we don't get any kids birthday gifts. And in return, we do no, no gift birthday parties. And like, it's gone. It's off the list. I never have to think about birthday gifts again. So that's like my own little mental checklist, you know, release and finding those little things in your life that you can just say, fuck it. <laughs> I think also surrounding yourself with people who are not judgmental either. Yeah, totally. The people around you. That's so yeah, important. Totally. Yeah. So on this topic about not giving a fuck about what people think about you, you wrote an op-ed for The Guardian titled, Why Mothers Should Stop Feeling Guilty and Start Getting Angry. So did that, what you learned from writing that article have anything to do with why you're calling this the fuck mom guilt world tour? Totally. So um, I did some research and guilt and anger operate in different parts of the brain. Guilt is an emotion that makes you quiet, makes you withdraw, it makes you not want to stand up for yourself. And anger is um, approach motivation. So it makes you energized, it makes you want to speak up, and want, it makes you want to move towards challenges. So, you know, we hear so much about mom guilt, and I think we're very comfortable as a society with mothers feeling guilty all the time because that does not challenge the status quo. That keeps everything exactly as it is because mother, people who feel guilty do not stand up for themselves. People who are angry stand up for themselves. People who are angry sue their employers, they run for office, they start businesses, they lobby um, 
politicians, they advocate for better workplace policies. All, anger, you don't, you don't necessarily want to dwell in anger, but it can be highly motivating towards action. So I'm very curious, and I want to live in a world where instead of mothers feeling guilty all the time, we live in a world where mothers are starting to get angry about what it is that we face. And, you know, anger is a complicated emotion, though. It, it, there's a lot of cultural baggage. There's racial issues. A lot of times people have issues with how they've been raised around anger and see it very, you know, it's very painful or difficult emotion. But I think there's a lot of power in it, in it as, a, as, a, for mother, as a way to move forward and for mothers to be allowed to ex express that. Because as a society, that's kind of scary, the idea of mothers expressing anger. So, Hannah, I'm interested a, a little bit, and I, I would love to hear sort of briefly your, resp your response to this idea. Briefly, yes. Uh, I think it's tricky for um, a black woman to get angry. I think it's tricky for a Muslim woman to get angry. I think, uh, you know, a lot of people with immigrant backgrounds recent immigrant backgrounds are taught to kind of just like head down, do your work. If something happens that makes you angry, that's okay. Just move it along, move it along. But also there, you run the risk of, um, you know, there's the angry black woman stereotype, right? You run the risk of people being afraid of me because I'm a Muslim woman. So. I have to be very careful when I express myself, and that's just the way it is. So I think this, this, this idea about anger might vary depending on where you come from, who you are, uh, and, there, and privilege definitely plays a big role in it, I think. Like some people just aren't allowed to be angry. Right. No, I think all of that, I think, makes the topic of anger so rich, but also so interesting to explore as an emotion for mothers. And there's, a, there's just there's I want to get there. angry, yeah. but I mean, there's times right. when I did not stand up for my child in the, in the playground. Right. And, and that haunts me. Right. Until this day. Like, right. so my, my daughter was very young, and I feel like I didn't speak up because because of a perception right. that maybe um, was gonna happen that I, I just didn't wanna get into any of that. Right. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's complicated. It's complicated, and I think there's a lot to sort of unpack and also, but also to challenge our ideas about guilt, I think, is very powerful because we are, we're so comfortable with guilt just hanging over us. Sorry for, uh, yeah. No. I, no, 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 and I'm just sitting here thinking like you probably felt guilty that you didn't stand up and get angry. Sure. Like I still it's feel like this never-ending right. cycle. Yeah, I'm talking about ago. something that yeah. happened nine years ago. Yeah. yeah, and I still have nightmares about it. Right, and I still wonder why I didn't do that. I am curious, Catherine, where you're seeing some bright spots or movement for working mothers, this new generation of working mothers. So I, um, you know, sometimes people ask me, is there anything that makes you hopeful? And I think everything makes me hopeful. I'm very hopeful. I could not get up 
every day and like dedicate my life to telling stories of working mothers if I was not hopeful about what is coming and what's, what's, what I see and what is happening. So basically, I think the thing that makes me the most hopeful is that um, people are sharing their stories and speaking up for themselves in new ways. And I think we're in a cultural moment where we're listening to all kinds of women's stories and women's voices in a way and taking them seriously in a way that we haven't before as a culture. And so I, I truly believe things are getting better and will continue to get better for working mothers. And I, the reason that I make the double shift is because I just want to be a part of that. Thank you for making the double shift. <laughs> All right, that is that concludes our evening. Hannah, thank you so much for being our guest. Catherine, thank you for making this, creating this tour. And thank you all for having us and, and sitting and listening to us talk tonight. <laughs>